Turn with me to Matthew, the 21st chapter this morning. You know, we're talking about this attitude that we as believers have where we really rise above the cares and the concerns of this world. And we are not caught up, and I'll say the word, we're not caught up in the materialism of our age. Where? You know, it's a pretty good idea, a pretty good indication where our heart is, our treasure, and our heart, and how they, what you treasure connects to your heart. And to treasure God and His kingdom rather than the things of this world. And you know what? It's tested every time we have a loss in this world, like a break-in, <clears throat> or uh, there's an accident, or we get sick, or we get into financial diff, whatever it is. It's tested. And we need to realize that the Easter me- message is truly about rising above the circumstances of this world. Our focus, lifting above the material, temporal things of this world upon Christ and his kingdom. And truly, truly as we do this, let me say it, very we are victorious over this world. Where does our victory come? Is it because we end up on the winning side with most people, with the most popular movement? No, it's about Christ and his kingdom and how he has overcome the evil one. He has overcome this world, and we reign and rule with him for all of eternity. Now, Matthew 21, and right away you're going to recognize this scripture as the triumphal uh, entry, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday, and you're saying, oh no, is this Palm Sunday? Well, not yet, but I wanted to start the message of Palm Sunday to give us an extra week to talk about Easter this year. I always feel so rushed when we have to wait Tell Palm Sunday to talk about the triumphal entry. And then we only have one Sunday to talk about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And so we're getting an early start. And the message is just as relevant this Sunday as it is next Sunday. How many of you believe that? Well, Jesus, Matthew 21, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Beth Foggy, On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there, and with her colt, buy her, untie her, and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, and the foal of a donkey. Verse 6, The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus said on them, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Verse 12. 
And Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all that were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers and the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. What a dramatic event in the life of our Lord. In history, as Jesus revealed himself as the king that would come and bring in the new kingdom, the final kingdom of our Lord. And it was a peculiar sight as Jesus came in on a little donkey. And the people praised him and worshipped him, but really didn't understand what was happening. And we see so much in this story that clarifies this incredible conflict we have for the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And how confusing it is for people who really don't understand the gospel, really don't understand who Christ really is, what this is all about and why anyone would really want to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you became a Christian because it's the most popular religion in the world? You became a Christian because it's the most popular religion. No? Well, then why did you do it? Because you knew you needed a Savior. You knew you needed a Savior. We are living in a world that says it's best to do the most popular thing. If you don't agree with that, then how do you explain the, the Facebook phenomenon? Now, don't get upset. Uh, I'm not a big Facebook fan. I know that it's a great opportunity for social network. I know Christians are even using Facebook in a great way to reach out. But being popular for being popular does not get us closer to the kingdom of God. Right? And the church must not substitute popularity and power and political influence in in this world for the kingdom of God. Does that happen? It comes in in very subtle ways. How many of you know that sometimes the church struggles with this and gets too much like the world to try to be successful not realizing the kingdom of God is not about about how the world prefers to see Christ. I visited a a church a number of years ago and I was given the grand tour and the church was struggling with finances and had various needs and I was there to talk to them about their Christian school and as I was walking through the facility and going on the tour they said when we built this church hear this when we built this church we were determined to build the biggest auditorium in America and then they said right hear this right before we finished the construction we found out that there was a church in California that was a little bit larger. And so we decided to add as many seats as we could and up in the balcony area, off to the sides, put in positions that couldn't even see the platform. They added rows and rows of seats to be the largest auditorium in the country. And he said, we miscalculated. We didn't quite add enough 
And I said, well, how many times has this place been filled? They said, never. They said, we really have never had more than about 50%. And I thought, what an interesting ambition to have the biggest church in the country. How many know that there are greater values than having the biggest church in the country? You know, there was a, a, a preacher in Tulsa that I got to know who said, you know what? He said, I stopped worrying about bigger and I started focusing on better and I found out that better was bigger. We don't want to strive to have a bigger church, but a better church in terms of God's standards, God's mission, God's values. Jack Hayford has always said, we never strove to have a bigger church. We just wanted to help people to grow to their full potential. Bigger people, not a bigger church. We invest in the people, and that is a kingdom principle. There was a church that I heard about that uh, <clears throat> tried an interesting experience in outreach where they were getting ready to spend money on advertising and outreach. And then they said, well, I wonder what would happen if instead of using all that money for advertising, we just offered money to people who visited our church. And so they began to advertise, hear this, $10 a piece for first-time visitors. True story. And uh, guess what? They had quite a swell in uh, <clears throat> visitor attendance that next Sunday as they were passing out the $10 bills. But pretty soon the board realized that there were people coming back for an additional 10 And the people who got the 10 were not coming back. And it really wasn't fulfilling their mission of the church because Jesus had said they were to make disciples, not pass out $10 bills. And the pastor was writing an article about how we missed it. And he said, I, I was blinded by the values of our society. And thinking, instead of spending that money on advertising, let's just get them in the door and then we'll reach them. There's something happens. Hear this. When we cross over and compromise and start to use worldly methods to do the work of the kingdom, we lose spiritually. And how important it is. It was uh, Chuck Colson who who spoke to the religious broadcasters right in the midst of the big crisis after three major evangelists had fallen. This was back in the 80s. And he stood in front of this group and he said, the three most important words in ministry are integrity, integrity, and integrity. And as a young minister, I heard that. And God just did something in my heart. The cry. How many of you have a cry in your heart for integrity? You want the real thing. You want something authentic. You don't want a fake. You don't want to settle for what may be popular, but you want the reality of the kingdom. Well, we see that Christ presented the reality of the kingdom and what a glorious, what a glorious entry that it was in terms of the true principles of the kingdom that God was establishing. Now, I want you to go through this passage with me, and I want you to see some major parts here through the the pictures as they unfold. And first of all, I want you to see that this happened in the city of Jerusalem. Focus on the city. A busy place. A well-populated place. A place where there was lots of power and politics 
And the things that were popular, that drew the crowds, were a very strong influence in that city. And Jesus approaches the city. Now, Jesus had cried over that city, I'm sure, many times. The scripture records that he wept over Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where God's children were. And that's where the center of worship and the temple and faith were represented and They were so far from God's purpose that Jesus looked over them and he wept. It makes us to pause and think, what about our city? Is God just as concerned about our city, Albuquerque, New Mexico, as he is about, is about Jerusalem and the people that were in Jerusalem in that day? Absolutely. And if we're to represent Christ to this city, should we care? Should we be concerned about our city? How many of you are concerned about the crime rate in Albuquerque? Concerned about families that are in need and drug addiction and homeless people and uh, so many, many problems that people have and needs. And, you know, God does not want us to sit in our comfortable church and forget about people that are in need. We need to cry for our city even as Jesus did. And we need to approach the city with the kingdom, which is eternal, which will ultimately be the solution to their problems. And so, Jesus approached the city. It was time for him to encounter the city and to reveal himself and his purpose. But he did not approach the city in a way that was expected. But he fulfilled the prophecy in Zechariah 9 that he would come on a little donkey and he would reveal the kingdom of God. It's not based on the power of this world, but the kingdom of God as a new order. You might say that the way Jesus came in and proclaimed himself and his purpose and his authority really turned that city upside down. They didn't understand if he was going to be king, if he was going to bear influence for them, well then where was his army? Where was his crown? Where were his loyal subjects that would take control of the city? But Jesus revealed that his kingdom would be the kingdom of the hearts of men that were turned to God. How many of you know that it's important for us to realize that God's kingdom is not of this world? Not in terms of the political power of the materialism and the wealth and the influence, but God's kingdom is about what's happening in our hearts and ultimately will be revealed in all of life as God, Jesus, comes and establishes his kingdom forever. Now this was a picture of Christ coming to the city. And you know Christians in every age have thought about this entry into Jerusalem. And it has been an important prophetic event. Pointing to his second coming. When he would come in a different way. Notice the contrast here. The first coming when he came into Jerusalem on a donkey. And how someday he will return in all of his glory of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
The first time, he came in riding on a colt. When he returns, he'll be riding on a great white horse. First time, he came alone. When he returns, he will come with all of the saints and the angels. The first time, he wore a crown of thrones, of thorns. When he returns, he will wear a crown of crowns. The first time, he was called king of the Jews. When he returns, he will be king of kings. The first time, he had no money for taxes. When he returns, he will own everything. The first time, he was mocked and jeered. When he returns, all will fear and tremble. The first time, he came as a man. When he returns, he will come as God. The first time, he was meek and lowly. When he returns, he will come in power and glory. The first time, he had nails in his hands. When he returns, he will have a rod of iron. The first time, he hung on a cross. When he returns, he will sit on a throne. The first time, he, he was judged in Pilate's hall. When he returns, he will be the ultimate and final judge. The first time he came as a lamb, when he returns, he will be the lion. <clears throat> Are you looking forward to the Lord's return? How do you know that this world is going to be pretty surprised? When things wind up and Jesus comes in such a way that every eye will see, every knee will bow, every creature on this planet will have to recognize that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. What's separating us from that return? Only a matter of time. Shouldn't this cause us to be more urgent in terms of reaching out and sharing the good news and helping people realize that there's still time to accept Him? If we will accept Him in our hearts willingly, we will not have to face Him as judge someday when He comes to bring all sin to judgment. What a picture. Well, the second thing I want you to see is this little colt that Jesus chose, according to the prophecy in Zechariah. A little colt that uh, would have been overlooked, but had a special purpose. And Jesus could have chosen a great stallion to ride in like a warrior. But this colt was a symbol of peace. It was also the kind of beast that would have been ridden by a king in terms of the transportation which was accepted and honorable in that time. And so he came in not as a warrior, but as a servant king. He sent the disciples to retrieve the colt, even as the prophecy said that the colt would be provided. And as they brought the animal to him, he sat upon it, and as he entered the city, there was something very significant about his manner, very significant about the glory of God upon him as he rode that humble beast, and he was revealed as the king of kings. Next, I want you to see the coats of those who gathered and saw that Jesus was riding into the city 
And they took their coats off and they spread them over the beast that he could ride upon their coats. And then they spread their coats on the streets and used palm branches to make the way. And their response was to to reverence him as a king. We think about how in that time a man's uh, coat was part of his honor and his reputation in society. And those who were wealthy and of high position could be identified by their clothing. Those that were in the military, those that were tradesmen, those that were fishermen or servants, all identified by their clothing, and particularly their coats. So as they laid down their coats upon the donkey and in front of him as a, for the pathway, they were, in a sense, saying that I am laying down my pride and who I am in this world. And there's a, a very good model there of worship that all of us need to realize. You realize that every time we come before the Lord and we worship Him, that we're not to come in our strength, in our position, in our reputation, in the glory that we have in this world, but we must all humble ourselves before Him, realizing that before Him we are all the same. So something special was happening as all of these people humbling themselves before Him, not really understanding what He was doing, but realizing that He indeed was the King. Next, I want you to see the conflict that developed as he arrived at the temple. This is a great conflict in authority. How many of you know that as Christians we experience the kingdoms that are in conflict? The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. We cannot live for God without coming directly against the king and the kingdom of this world. And so here... It it would seem that Jesus would be welcome in the temple. But he was not welcome. As he came in, verse 12, it says that he saw those that were buying and selling. And he saw that it was a commercial place, a material place, a materialistic place, an ungodly place. And we know that there were Merchants there that were selling sacrifices at exorbitant prices to the people, taking advantage of the people. Many of them had come on long journeys to come and to worship and to make their sacrifices. They were being taken advantage of. And these same merchants were, were changing, exchanging money at unfair rates, taking advantage of the people. And Jesus saw that materialism in the temple and he threw over the tables, and he cast them out. And what did he say? My father's house shall be a house of what? Prayer. Not of marketing, but of prayer. Every time I read this as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, I feel convicted about how the church can be some, become so materialistic And I get weary, can I just say it, of the kind of marketing that takes place in the name of God to build up the church. And how this is not pleasing to God. One time I visited a service when I was traveling on a weeknight and I went, it was a fairly well-known church and I went into the lobby and there in the lobby of the church building they had a concession stand with popcorn and candy bars, and drinks, and the prices were a little less 
that you'd pay at the theater. But I was so puzzled about that. And sure enough, they were having a service, some kind of a concert that night. And I asked someone about the concession stand and how, you know, how this came. And they said, well, people like refreshments. We, try to, we don't want them to feel like they're in church when they walk in that door. And I thought, isn't this interesting <clears throat> that we're ashamed of being church? Forgive me, but, you know, the anti-church thinking today where we're supposed to be as much like the world so worldly people will be totally comfortable there and they don't even know they're in church. You know, I really believe that God wants the church to be different in terms of its values, in terms of its integrity, in terms of holiness. And I believe it's important to be contemporary in our methodology and the way we reach out, but never to compromise the values of the kingdom of God. I wonder if Jesus showed up at any church today, any church down the this church, if there was some cleansing that he would want to do in order to bring our church, every church, each church, in. I'm, I'm sure that's true. And for us to open our hearts and our lives to the Lord and say, Lord, we want you to come and cleanse your house. We want you to to change the way we do church. Lord, we want you to be comfortable in your own house. And we want the church to be the house of prayer that you intended it to be. This is convicting for us, and it ought to be. And we realize that God's standards are different. So the conflict, the tables being thrown over, and then the cleansing which takes place as God calls the church back to be a church, a house of prayer. And then in verse 14, Jesus is ministering to the people according to their needs. And this is a wonderful picture of the church returning to what God intended it to be. And what, what's happening? The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and they were healed. And when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children, the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna, son of David, they were indignant. They didn't want the church to be what Jesus wanted it to be. Hence the conflict, even with the leadership of the church. How many of you want Jesus to have his way with our church? Whatever it costs, whatever it takes. How many of you want that if our leaders are any, any, in any way in the way of what God wants, that it's better for the leaders to step aside than it is for us to push Christ outside. I want to say that in a nice way, but say it. Sometimes we as leaders get the wrong idea, hear this, that we're in control. God never set us in positions of authority to be in control of his people and his work. He wants us to exercise our gifts and serve the people, but he wants to be in control. He wants to be in charge. He wants to move as he wills to help people that are in need. And so when we get to church, we need to come with an expectation that Jesus is going to be there. He's going to be in control. He's going to, be, he's going to minister as he will. And what happens? People get healed. People get saved. People get delivered. The kingdom of God is manifested. What happens when we're in control? Well, what happens is we're in control. 
There's no room for the Lord to work. People who are in need will be disappointed because we're in the way. You know, I think we need to pray that God would cleanse us personally and cleanse our church and help our church to truly represent His kingdom in this community, in this place where God has put us to say, Lord, help us to be the kind of church that you really want us to be. Okay, I need to summarize and then we need to, to finish. Jesus came to Jerusalem because the city needed a Savior. <laughs> the same is true about our city and every city in our day and age. We need the Savior. He may not come the way we expect Him to because we are so confused by our culture and the values that have a way of creeping in and confusing us in terms of what's right and what's good and the best way to go. We really need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see Jesus as He really is, as He's coming in to do the work that He really intends to do. Not an imaginary Jesus. Not a Jesus that we would create that would satisfy our interests and reinforce our values, but the Christ who comes in and cleanses the temple and cleanses hearts and sets things back in order. <clears throat> you know, we need to realize that this is a very special work that God wants to do. And, you know, as I look at this donkey, I think about, you know, that's a good example for each of us in terms of how we need to be available to be used by the Lord. That donkey was available. They untied him. He was obedient as Jesus set on him and led him into the city. And now each of us, like that donkey, need to take part and what God is doing. And as the donkey was obedient, he revealed Christ to all who had need. How many of you know that th that day when the crowd gathered around, they weren't saying, oh, wow, what kind of a donkey is he riding? You know, what's, what, what model is that? I wonder how much he cost. The focus was not on the donkey. The focus was on Christ. The focus is not on you and me. And how good we may think we are as Christians. But on the Christ we carry to a lost world. So how many of you are willing to be a donkey for Jesus? Uh, willing to be the, the dumbest donkey in the stable. Uh, if, that was, if that's what it takes to be obedient. And get Jesus before the people who need him to be saved. Wow, that really changes our whole idea doesn't it? Of being a servant, of being faithful. Well, and finally, let me just focus one more time on the importance of opening our hearts and lives, our church, our family, our nation, to the cleansing that only God can do. God is the only one who can cleanse us and deliver us and make us what we really need to be. It's got to start in our hearts, in our families, our churches, in our communities. And how many of you know that our whole nation, our whole system needs a cleansing that only God can give? The corruption and the confusion that we see in this world. God is the only, and ultimately God is going to finish his work. 
Ultimately, he's going to appear and bring in his kingdom and do that ultimate cleansing. And we need to make sure that in our hearts that we're on his side, obeying him, that we're sharing in the work that he is doing, is turning this world upside down. Wow. As I read the last part of verse 15, the response of those who saw this and how they were, this is a tough word. I, I like the word in the, in the uh, New International Version. They were indignant. And I think, you know, if God is doing something that contradicts what you want done, if God's doing something that's going to take away your power or your position, You may defend your position and become indignant and truly even become the enemy of God without realizing it. We need to humble ourselves. We need to realize that God and God alone has authority to do the work that He knows is best to bring in His kingdom. And so, how do we respond? We repent. (laughs) We get back. To seeing Jesus as he really is. And we say, Lord, help us to serve you with integrity. Help us, O God. Like that little donkey. To be available, to be obedient and carry you to people who need you. And stop thinking about ourselves. Our way, our church. You know, things that we like. The things that we believe. No. Let's think about Christ and his kingdom. And how... He wants to bring his kingdom into this world, in us and through us. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning that you really are turning the world upside down. Help us, O God, even as we close this morning, to seek you with our whole hearts and be ready to receive your kingdom and to celebrate your goodness. Even as those people shouted, Hosanna, when they saw you coming, O God, may we Say Hosanna, but really understand what that means in terms of worshiping you as the Lord and the Savior, the King of all kings. Help us, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. As you hear this word and you think about your own values, your own priorities, how many of you, if you're just honest with the Lord this morning, know that you you need to, to, to change some of your attitudes, some of your values, That in some ways there's been too much of a mixture of worldly values and interests. And you really, you really want to put God first in your life in a new way, in a new commitment. How many of you would recommit this morning with me to say, Lord, we want to put you first. We don't want to be deceived by this world. We don't want to be confused. We don't want to have conflicted values. But Lord, we want you to have your way with us in this world. If you're willing to do that, just pray with me. Lord, forgive us for worldly values as we are Christians in name and Christians in confession. Lord, sometimes we live just like the world lives. Help us, O God, to draw back and recommit ourselves to you first, O God. We ask you, Lord, during this Easter season to help us to be reminded to put you first in all of our attitudes and relationships and priorities. Lord, deliver us from the power and the politics and the materialism 
of this world and this age. And help us to live for you in simple dignity as we seek to obey you and honor you. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. I want to invite you to the altar this morning. If you'd like to take some time just to spend with the Lord in prayer, it's a great opportunity. If anyone's here this morning and you're not sure you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, don't let another Easter pass without being sure. I want to talk with you and pray with you about your salvation. And you can be sure this morning before you leave that Jesus is your Savior. We're going to be dismissed now. As Sam continues to sing this, let's go with God's blessing and God's favor and that we are part of His kingdom as He is revealing in this world His greater purpose through us. In Jesus' name, amen.